Thank you guys. Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them together and your smart device, whatever it is you use to follow along. And let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. I want us to consider these first 17 verses uh, because it gives to us a, a way of working out our frustrations. And uh, this is just part of our ongoing series on cognitive behavioral theology and uh, how having this good spiritual foundation is the necessary touchstone to the overall wellness that God would desire for us. I think we could all agree this morning that training requires discipline. It applies to any field, whether it's physical training, mental training, spiritual training. Uh, it requires a great deal of, of discipline. I'm convinced that one of the reasons so many people are in a bad mood whenever they try to uh, train themselves physically, mentally, and spiritually is because that discipline that it requires uh, has left them angry, disappointed. They're just in a, in a bad mood when you're having to exercise discipline. That's why instead of a regimented workout plan or a particular kind of nutritional plan, uh, you know, we, we want doctors to give us a pill to make the, the symptoms go away. We want pills. We want, we want programs to, to make something easier for us. Spiritually, we want, we want to be spoon-fed. We want some personality far off somewhere that we listen to on a podcast to, uh, to somehow give us this aha moment where when I just hear their words, all of a sudden the life of faith is made easier. But it never is, not physically, mentally, or spiritually. To reach the goals, to be successful, to, to acquire where God to be in a place where God would have us to be, it, it's going to require discipline. I've wondered over the past couple of weeks, reflecting on, on this series and the various topics that I'm addressing, I can't help but wonder, would, would we be honest enough with ourselves? I'm not asking you to do it with one another, but would we be honest enough with our, ourselves to say that the negative emotions that so many have been dealing with, and for many, negative emotions and displays of negative behaviors have been, have been manifested these past 19 months from individuals that you would have never expected to behave that way? Way. And I wonder as, as we look back over these 19 months and how uh, your life has been disrupted and uh, maybe these negative emotions that are debilitating for some have, have risen to the surface, I can't help but wonder at the very heart of these, at the core, at the root, would you be honest enough to say that for some it's because you're disappointed with God? That in your heart and mind, you blame God for all of this. You're frustrated with God. You're disappointed with God. That somehow in your thinking, because you're seeking to be an obedient life, that, that God is obligated to upend his, uh, upkeep his end of the bargain, keep up his end of the bargain. And 19 months ago, your life was fine. It was comfortable. It was predictable. It was manageable. Everything was hitting on all cylinders and this and then all of this came along. And maybe at the heart of hearts, you're angry at God. Hopefully what we have all learned in this and had to examine if we have used this time wisely, this season that we find ourselves, 
hopefully what, what we have come to recognize, and for some they have, they, they've come to recognize that, that God's purpose in our lives, what God is seeking to accomplish is, is not our, our, our happiness with our circumstances. That that is not God's concern, that, that you have this, this continual unbroken happiness with the way your life is right now. But that the objective of God is, is in his process of sanctification, of molding and shaping you into the person that he would have you to be, that he's trying to move you from this place that was comfortable, manageable, and predictable, built upon your preferences, and now he's disrupted that and he's moving you to a place there where he would have you to be. And maybe you would be shocked that Part of the way that, that God does this, accomplishes this, is by means of discipline. You see here in Hebrews chapter 12, we see the purpose of what God is trying to do. We'll jump ahead a bit in the narrative, but it says there in that second clause of verse 10, but he disciplines us for, for our good so that we may share his holiness. And so the author of, of Hebrews is saying to this struggling, discouraged, frustrated congregation that is, that is on the verge of giving up because, because life is hard. He's saying, listen, what you're going through is just part of the process of how God is, is shaping you and, sh- and shaping you and fashioning you that you might share in his holiness. Because that is something that will not be shared by an undisciplined people. He's really reiterating what what Paul has already said. Paul would would remind the church at Thessalonica that what God's will is, it is the will of God for your sanctification, he says. It is the will of God for your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. But I think where it catches us off guard, if we are not faithful in the reading of Scripture and, and understanding the purposes of God, where he is trying to move us from to, to where he is trying to take us, is that one of the ways he does this is by way of discipline. Nine times from verses 5 to 11, in that span of time, nine times, nine occasions, the author of Hebrews uses this word, Discipline. That discipline is the means of God accomplishing his salvation from start to finish. That's what Paul would say to the church at at Philippi. In chapter 1 and verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. So between now where we are until the coming of Christ Jesus, God by way of disciplining us is working, fashioning, molding us to the people that he would desire us to be when Christ returns. Now the idea of God as a disciplining God, God the Father as a disciplining God, that may be hard to take for some. 
especially if you have the misfortune of having been raised in this generation by, by what is referred to as helicopter parents or lawnmower parents, parents that, that remove from your path every kind of obstacle, remove from your path any anticipated kind of adversity so that you as an adolescent coming up, that you had a perfectly paved highway. None of the challenges, none of the adversities, none of the, the things that toughen us up and grow us up. And so for, the, for those to hear that God is a God who disciplines, that, that may be a God that's hard to take and even easier for you to reject. But if we are serious in our following of, of Christ Jesus and understanding of where God is trying to move us and God's desire that we be a sanctified people, that we are a growing people, a people that are being transformed daily, that we might share in his holiness, then it is vital that we examine closer this, this idea of discipline. And understand, as, as we delve into this, the kind of discipline that is described here in Scripture is a discipline that is disruptive to what this world has held forth as being desirable. That the discipline that is held forth in this letter is a discipline that is disruptive to what this world is holding forth as being desirable. In fact, it is the discipline of God that is seeking to eliminate those things, that kind of comfort, that kind of satisfaction to get, to have, and to hold, and to keep. But it is a discipline that seeks to divest us of our love affair with this world. It's of vital importance, I think, that we begin with the messaging of discipline the messaging of discipline. That is, what is God seeking to say to us through this process of, of discipline? Let's begin with, with verse four. And remember, he's writing to a people that are greatly discouraged. They're frustrated, they're disappointed. They're suffering great hardships. They don't know why this is happening. They're on the verge of giving up. They are not enduring, they are not persevering. And the writer has tried to, tried to frame this in the context of Christ Jesus and what, and what he has done. And not just him, but that others have come before us in the life of faith. This great cloud of witnesses that he mentions here in, in verse 1. And those who have come before us in the life of faith, who have served faithfully, who have endured, who have, en who have, en who have endured hardship much more challenging than yours. He said, listen, these are a great cloud of witnesses around us. They bear witness that the, that the promises of God are true. You be faithful. You hang in there. What about Christ Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross? For consider him who was endured, verse 3, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Yet you, and I'm not being unsympathetic to your challenges and hardships and your disappointment and your frustration, but, but you have not yet resisted, again, perspective. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord that's quoting from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, nor faint when you are punished by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he punishes every son whom he accepts. 
It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The point at which you begin worrying is when you're not experiencing hardship and discipline and challenges that, that reframe your mind and, and your understanding of what it is to, to be a follower of Christ. You're, you're missing the opportunity if you're not experiencing these kind of challenges in, in life. Furthermore, we had, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as, as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Now, though in our ear we hear the author speaking the language of discipline, knowing that the author was inspired by the Holy Spirit to, to write what I hear in my, in my mind, I hear the message of God's love. That God disciplines those who, who he loves. And, and this idea of God using discipline to, to move us to the place he would have us to be. Listen, I, I, I'm shocked that this is something new for some. Because this is one of the most prevalent, redundant, recurring themes in Scripture, the discipline of God in fashioning and molding his people. You can go to the prophets, Amos chapter 3. You go to uh, Psalm 73. You go to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1, chapter 12, James chapter 1, Revelation chapter 3. From beginning to end, there's just this recurring theme of God fashioning his people by means of discipline. Well, what does it mean to discipline? What does the author mean by that, by that term? Well, it, it, it's a word that, that means to instruct. It means to instruct, it means to guide, it means to reprove, it means to rebuke. Discipline is the means by which God gives us the parameters by, by which we live the life that he has called us to live. It, it is used to keep us on track on the path that we are supposed to go. And he does it by, by means of, of his of his word. We, he has given us his word. He has given us the church to be accountable to, to one another. Of course, in his word, you have to, uh, it's up to you to determine whether or not this is going to be the authoritative guide for your life in matters of, of faith and practice. And if you believe that, that this word, that scripture, if you believe that it is authoritative for, for your life in matters of faith and practice, then you're going to find that, it, that it's like a playbook. It gives you boundaries. It gives you parameters to live the life of faith. Parents play a vital role in this discipline in the life of faith in a way that has a formative impact upon your life. Under shepherds, pastors that God calls to lead his church, under shepherd to, to, be, to be a shepherd to the, to the sheep. And he gives us, gives us pastors under shepherds to preach and to teach and to proclaim, 
to offer guidance, instruction, reproof, and rebuking. To set us on the course that God would have us to travel. Well, how does God discipline? Through a variety of ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, sickness, health issues. That can be a way of God disciplining you. See, discipline is the means by which all, uh, all the things that, that should not be attached to us, that's why, that's why the writer of Hebrews would say, let us, let us set aside every obstacle and the sin which so entangles us. And as you embrace the process of disciplining, it means that, that I'm, I'm ridding myself of those things. Uh, I evaluate what, what's good, what's bad, what contributes, what detracts from by becoming the person that Christ would have me to be. So it can be health issues sometimes. You're saying, well, Bobby, are, are you saying all of this is... That all sickness is caused by God? No, I'm not saying all sickness is, is caused by God, but I'm saying it can be used by God to discipline you. Countless testimonies of, of individuals have no regard for the things of God, not interested in talking about it until they have a health crisis. Then all of a sudden they're all ears. And God was able to use that where the simple preaching of the gospel made no inroads. Uh, you let them be flat on their back in a hospital and all of a sudden they're all ears. Thief on the cross? That's a health crisis if you ever got one. He was all ears. Financial hardship makes you evaluate where's your trust persecution, which we really don't experience in this country, not, not to biblical proportions that persecution is, is understood. But all of these things, when rightly seen and understood, these have a way of disciplining us. It has a way of making us rethink life. And understand what the writer is doing here. He's not offering forth. He's not trying to address all suffering. This, what he's writing, this, this is not a theodicy that he is offering here to account for all suffering in the world. It is not that. This is a pastoral concern. He writes as a pastor to a people that are discouraged, and he's trying to do it in a way that might encourage them to persevere. Which brings a final question of why does God discipline? Why does God discipline? Well, this entire passage, all of chapter 12, it's really an extended answer to that question of why does God discipline? It's because he loves us. Remember there in, in verse 6, for whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Could you imagine? I could imagine. I mean, how much, how much, how much do you have to hate someone? As a parent, how much would you have to hate your child to not discipline them? To say that there are boundaries in our household. There's a way things are done, there's a way things are not done. How much do you have to hate your child to not give them boundaries, to have, to have a system of discipline that trains them up and prepares them for the world into which they're going? How much would God have to hate us 
to just fashion creation, wind it up like a top, and then just set it off and let it spin out of control on its own. He disciplines because he loves us. He disciplines us because he's training us. He's training us up into his likeness to share in his holiness. Listen, there's a little bit in every one of us as parents. Listen, I, I discipline my kids. And there's a part of you as a parent when you're, and especially with, with an understanding as a Christian parent, when you are entrusted to, to make your home into an incubator of faith where faith can be nurtured. I understood my role as, as a parent. I wanted them to grow up. I disciplined them because I want them to grow up holding my values. Values of faith. There's a, there's a sense in which all of us, when we discipline our children, we want them to grow up like us, don't we? In a sense. To perpetuate our family, what we represent, what we're about. A heritage, a legacy of faith. I did it imperfectly. I, I, I make no bones about it. I was an imperfect father. I did, I did what he said here. I, I did what I thought was right at the moment with the information that I had. But if I did it imperfectly, listen, God, God is a perfect father. He has, he, has, he has perfect knowledge of all the circumstances that brought this about that made it necessary for discipline. And when our children are going through discipline, they don't like it, do they? Oh, you're mean. You're so mean. Oh, you're such an ogre as a parent. You know, I wish you, I wish you were like other kids' parents. You know, they let them do anything. You know, it's then, then as they get older, they, they look back and say, you know, I, I didn't appreciate it then, but man, I really appreciate the boundaries that you set in place for our house. And if we can eventually get that kind of respect from our children as imperfect parents, then certainly God must get it from us because we know and we trust that he is a perfect parent. He is the perfect father. So he disciplines us because he, he loves us, because he is training us to be something more than what we are right now. To move us like Abraham to a place of not knowing, to escape this place that you've become so comfortable, that it has become so predictable, to stir that up, to move you to a place of not knowing where you must rely on him, not your feelings, your intuition, your circumstances. After the messaging of discipline what, and the necessity of hearing that this is really about the love of God, let me address this issue in two verses, in verse 5 and verse 15, and that is the misreading of discipline. It's very easy for you to misread God's discipline. It's very easy for us to misinterpret the things that are happening to us in life. It's easy to misinterpret the discipline that God has allowed to come about in our life. Notice in, in verse 5, this is what happens. There's, there's really four things in these two verses I'm going to reference. There's four things that, that happen when you and I misinterpret, when we misread the discipline of God. We see it here, a couple of them here in, in verse 5. He says, and you have, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. 
So the first thing that, that occurs when you misread, when you misinterpret the, God, the, this, the discipline that God has brought about in your life is you forget your training. You forget what you have been taught. You see, we come to church, we read our Bibles, hopefully on our own. We hunger and thirst for the Word of God to know it. We study it intentionally. We pray unceasingly. We gather in rhythm with the people of God, the community of faith, that we might be accountable to one another, to build fellowship with one another. We, we give and we're stewards of our tithes. We're stewards of our energy, our resources, all the things that God has entrusted to us. But if, if I misinterpret what, what God is, is doing, I forget all that. I become reactionary to the circumstances. I become reactionary to my emotions. Notice, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And he says, my son, do not regard lightly. So a second thing that happens when we, dis, when, we, when we misinterpret the discipline of God, the second thing that happens is that we disregard it. That's, that's what he means here when, when he says regard lightly. That is, we, we take nothing from it. We miss the opportunity in this trial and in this time of adversity. We, we miss the opportunity for this to have some type of formative impact on our life and our development as followers of Christ. We don't give it the regard that we should. A third thing that, that happens is that, is that we, become, we become discouraged, nor faint when you are punished by him. Feigning is a reference to being, to being discouraged. You lose that internal locus of control that Christ has instilled in you that makes you a victor, not a victim of your circumstances. But if the things that happen to you in life that, that are negative in nature and, and your response is just to throw up your hands, oh, well, what can I do? Woe is me. You're giving up that internal locus of control that Christ has given you as a victor, and now you just give yourself over to an external locus of control, and now you have a victim's mentality. It's where you lose heart. You just give in. You just throw up your hands and say, oh, it is what it, what it is. You become like the psalmist who, who laments and says in the midst of his adversity, oh, that I had wings like a dove, that I could just fly away and finally be at rest. A final thing that happens, a fourth thing that happens whenever you misinterpret God's discipline is that you become bitter. And this is the worst of all. Because it, is, because it is such a cancer to the soul. Notice in verse 15, the writer says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Now, in, in human communities, this, is, this, this, this possibility of bitterness 
In human communities, it, it is always something, it is always there lurking beneath the surface. That's just the nature of human communities. But when bitter arises in the heart of one, disappointment, which always gives way to disillusionment, which always gives way to bitterness, it's never just self-imposed. If I'm bitter, I want people around me to be bitter. Have you ever noticed? It's like uh, in athletics, I notice it. It's like a cancer in a locker room. These people seem to find one another. That's why one of the first challenges of a new coach is you got to get rid of the cancers. Because these are people that, that individuals that, that tend to find one another. It's amazing in life how they find one another. This festering bitterness which corrupts the, the tissue around it. And that can easily happen when, when you misinterpret and you misread what God is trying to accomplish in moving you from where you are to where he would have you to be in the life of development. So I think it raises the question, are you teachable? That's a question only each one of us can answer. We can only answer it for ourselves. Are you teachable? Are you trainable? Do you have a personality that is coachable? Do you allow the Word of God? Do you allow those that God has, has brought into your life as trainers, as equippers, as un, under shepherds? Are are you the type of personality that that will allow you, that will allow them to coach you up? Or is the spirit of bitterness stolen that possibility from you? Well, the question's answered here, the mastering of discipline. Here's how we get on the other side of this. Those that do not misread it, those who do not those who do not misinterpret it, they get on the other side of this and they master the discipline that God has imposed upon them. Notice in in verse verse five, and again, I'm gonna give you some bullet points here of how you master discipline. How this just becomes a part of your faith journey. You understand the adversity of life that somehow in this providential sovereign care, God is able to take this and use this in his process of fashioning me, sanctifying me, sharing in his holiness with me. Now, we've already looked at verse 5 once in regard to misinterpretation, and so really we can kind of backdoor into this to find out what we do to master this kind of discipline. The first thing that's necessary is remembering. That's his charge, and that's his frustration, the the writer's frustration with with his audience. They, They have forgotten, and you have forgotten You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. You have forgotten. So the first, if you really want to master the discipline that God is is going to bring into your life that he does and he will bring into your life, if you're really going to seize the opportunity of these, these moments where we can be disciplined, more disciplined in our faith journey, listen, you got to remember what you're taught. This is where you exercise your faith. My soul, we've studied the Bible long enough where somehow we can intentionally recall how I'm supposed to respond as a child of God. As a follower of Christ, remember. Listen, that's what coaches battle. Practice things redundantly, teach things redundantly over and over and over and over in practice, which is what this is. This is our practice. 
And we say the same things over and over and over and over. And the reason is, this is part of training. That when your moment of adversity is, when you get hit in the mouth, you revert to your training, not your emotions, your feelings. In psychiatric care, the therapeutic techniques that you learn, you have to intentionally exercise those. You can't just give, in your moment of pressure, you just can't give yourself over to those feelings. So he said, if you really want to master discipline, if you really want to take advantage of this, remember, don't forget, remember. And listen to what, what he says here. Remember the exhortation. I'm going to put it in the positive. Not forgotten, but remember. Remember the exhortation. This is a very strong word. And that's, that's the great majority of, of the teaching of Scripture. It is given in an exhortation. Listen, I fear that too many of us are trying to make the faith journey into some kind of sentimental journey. I don't need sentiment in the life of faith. I need exhorting to move from where I am to where God would have me to be. You need to remember your exhortation, how you've been exhorted. Not just wanting some little mamby-pamby sentimental when you're going through adversity. Well, I guess I'll claim the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. No, come on. More than that. It's not an, it, don't, don't just endure. Don't just get through this. You're exhorted to be something different. The second thing, along with remembering, is grow up. Grow up. That's part of the exhortation. You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're big enough to make that decision, you're a son of God. Grow up. If your translation has children, that's a poor translation. And some do. Some earlier translations do in the English. But it's an exhortation to grown-ups. The life of faith is not an extended adolescence. Grow up. At some point in the faith journey, instead of taking this little mamby-pamby victim mentality, grow up. At some point in the journey of faith, you have to play your adult card. You have to get on your big boy pants. You meet the adversity head on and you recall the exhortation, the charge that was given to you as sons of God. And then you have to submit to the training process. Just committing your life to Christ, the new birth, being born again, that isn't it. The fact that you have been born again means that you have been set on a path that anticipates you becoming an adult spiritually. That anticipates you growing and maturing until the consummation of the age and the coming of Christ. Notice the process. Verse 11, for the moment, and again, we saw last week, the context of suffering was that it's just, Peter says, just for a little while. For the moment, all discipline seems not to be pleasant, but painful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, and I love that word trained because it, the etymology of that word has, it has to do with, with gymnasium. It's associated with the gymnasium. These, these are people that go to the gym with their faith. 
They're so disciplined in their faith. They go to the gym every day in their faith. They go to God's gymnasium every day. It's a non-negotiable. Am I going to work out today? No, not these. Not these that have embraced and mastered godly, God's discipline. They're in God's gymnasium every day. And because they have trained themselves in the discipline of faith, Afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, here's what he says. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and knees that are feeble. Remember who he's writing of people who are discouraged, who are needing to be encouraged to persevere and to hang in there. Therefore, strengthen the hands that, that are weak and the knees that are feeble. I know your pain. Listen, keep working out. Keep going to the gym. Worst thing you can do is shut down. A few years ago, I quit taking off weeks in my, in my work. They, you know, these strength coaches used to tell me, oh, every, you know, Bobby, about every six to eight weeks, you need to take an off week. Well, I don't know what happened, but somewhere between 55 and 63, those off weeks became more detrimental than beneficial. Because I realized after, after a week of doing nothing, that, you know, my arthritis in my knees was acting up, my feet, my hands. Got to keep going. Keep going. That's, that's what the writer is saying. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are fable. Make straight paths for your feet. Stay on the paths of righteousness so that the limb which is impaired may not be dislocated but rather be healed, pursue peace with all people, pursuit, diligence. It's part of the process. It doesn't happen automatically. It is something that has to be pursued. Pursue peace with all people and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is a marvelous contrast in this, cat, in this, in this chapter that I find such, to be such an encouragement to me. When you go and you begin this chapter and uh, there's that first verse, just look at the, and, and there's a, a great many athletic metaphors in Hebrews. I like Hebrews. Paul uses a great many athletic metaphors in, in his writing and his letters. I think that's why I'm drawn to Paul and to the writer of, of Hebrews. I mean, there's this inspiring picture here in, in chapter one. Since we have this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, it's like the Greek Colosseum. It's the imagery of the Greek games, the Olympics. Oh, the fanfare of the cloud of witnesses. Man, it's motivational, it's inspiring. He's saying, listen, church, you've got, you've got all these, these spiritual athletes who have gone before you. Now then they're cheering you on in the Colosseum of, of competition. But now we get to these verses that I read just a moment ago about strengthening hands that are weak, knees that are feeble. Kind of changes pictures from where we were in verse 1. Seems that the writer is now saying that, that where you are, when we're talking about persevering and enduring, it's in like the Olympics. It's more like the Special Olympics. Because we're all lame. 
We are all infirmed in some way. We all feel crippled in some way, in ways that frustrate, in ways that disillusion. He's saying the way to overcome this is you've got to keep going. Every major city today seems to have a marathon of its own. You ever seen a marathon? Watch you know, you have all these, these lean, lithe individuals on the front. And all the guys on the front end of a, of a marathon, the start of a marathon, man, they just look the part. Tall, linear guys, man, they got these little shorts on, legs up to their ears. And man, they're, they're all there. They're all going to set personal records. Their objective is to win, set personal records. Then, then in the back end of a marathon, you know, and some of these have 25, 30, 40,000 participants. But in the very back, there's individuals there. Most of them, they all look like us. They, you know, they got a little meat hanging over the, the belt. You know, they're a little chunky in the middle. You know, big old ham hocks for thighs. There's some on walkers. There's some on wheelchairs. All kinds of infirmities. And you know what their objective is? Finish. I just want to finish. That's where we are. We're the group in the back of the marathon. The life of faith is a marathon. So you keep limping. You keep going. That's how you work out and work through your frustrations. Let's pray together. Father, how we find ourselves encouraged by your word. Because, Lord, we understand this kind of disappointment. We understand this kind of disillusionment. We understand pain and hardship that would whisper in our ear to quit, to lay down. Don't go any further. But Father, all we can do is just present to you our frailties, our lameness, our crippledness. And our commitment to you is to, is to endure, to persevere in this marathon of faith. So Father, I pray during this time that Father, you might encourage the downtrodden, the despondent, that some, whether here or online, Lord, that they would today determine to give their life to you, to begin this journey of faith, the first step of following Jesus. That others, Lord, would become a part of our church family, a family of the lame, the broken, the spiritually crippled, who are seeking and desiring to be moved from where we are to where God would have us to be. So stir in our hearts, challenge us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.